and, and I hope that we were able to accomplish that. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15, if you would. If you're ready to hear a little bit of preaching, say amen. amen. All right. Let's read verses 32 and verses number 33. Then said Samuel, Bring ye hither to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As thy sword hath made woman childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Installment number four in the last message, I promise, um, on defeating sin in our lives. If you would, uh, put a marker in Matthew chapter five. We're going to spend the first few minutes explaining the process of verse 32 and 33. Then we're going to practically apply 32 and 33 by going to Matthew chapter 5 where we'll spend the majority of our time tonight. I want to start the message by telling a short story of two fictional friends, the frog and the toad. At first this is going to seem elementary to you and it feels very elementary to speak, uh, but, but hang with me. Toad decides that he wants to make a batch of cookies. So he did, and they were amazing. Story says he was so overwhelmed with how good they tasted that he hopped straight over to Frog's place to share the deliciousness. As the two devoured these incredibly tasting cookies, they quickly realized they can't stop eating them. Just as they decide to have just one last cookie, they find they want to eat even more. And despite their resolve and their willpower to quit eating, they find themselves continuing to indulge. So Frog and Toad quickly realize that if they are ever going to stop eating the cookies, they will have to do something to limit their access to them. The rest of the story will detail all the steps they take to make the cookies harder to get. And when I continue part two of the story, you'll know I'm three or four minutes from being done with my message. I know you're probably on the edge of your seat, thinking, what, what does a fictional story about a frog and a toad have anything to do with defeating sin? I, I want you to hang on to that thought, because I'll, I will finish the story, and you'll see I believe it contains a powerful truth. Even a children's story contains a powerful truth. At the beginning of 1 Samuel 15, we, we discussed in the start of this series that God in his grace gives King Saul another chance to lead his people. He gives them a clear command to utterly destroy the Amalekites. That means wipe them out. Unfortunately, King Saul, because of pressure and because of pleasure, spared King Agag and the best of the livestock. He kept prisoners, and he paid the price for it. Samuel confronted King Saul, but Saul expressed worldly sorrow by denying his sin, justifying his sin, minimizing his, sh his sin, uh, shifting the blame for his sin, and ultimately showing more sorrow over losing his kingdom than sinning against his king. And because Saul didn't deal with Agag like he was supposed to, Samuel has to come in verse 32 and deal with it himself. 
Agag is still hanging around. When Samuel calls for him, the Bible says he came to Samuel delicately. Now, when you think of the word delicately, you might think he's tiptoeing like, don't, don't hurt me. It's not like he's walking on ice. That word delicately in the Hebrew means cheerfully. So it means probably the opposite of what we would think it would mean. Evidently, he thought because he had been spared by the king that he was good to go. He was feeling pretty confident. And he comes up to Samuel, probably whistling a good tune, saying, hey, is it time to let me go? But Samuel wasn't amused. The Bible says that he took out his sword and he hewed him into pieces. That word hewed literally means this, to slaughter. The imagery is that of a slaughterhouse. We know a thing or two about a slaughterhouse. I've toured National Beef, and by the way, I I appreciate those that work there. When I went there, um, I I saw the work ethic of, of those that that work at National Beef, and and I appreciate that demographic. I appreciate that part of our economy. And as I was watching those individuals work, they took us kind of from stage to stage. So from the time they get the cow off of the trailer to the time it's in a box. And I think, and Randy, you would know, I I, I think they told us they do around 3,000 heads a day, something like that, per shift. And uh, that's a lot of cows. And, and, and as they take that cow out of the trailer and it kind of gets in the chute and they funnel it into that, that narrow pathway, they stun that cow to the point where it stands still and I won't go any further. But to make a long story short, man, that cow goes from a, tra- a paddy wagon to, to a box into your freezer, on your grill, into your belly. But it's a pretty gruesome process between the time it gets off the paddy wagon and the time it gets into a box. And the writer gives us a sense, church, of ruthlessness in Samuel's approach to destroying Agag. Samuel isn't messing around. Samuel is demonstrating how Saul should have dealt with Agag from the get-go. Because Agag represents the sin that we hang on to. The sin that remains undealt with in our life. The prisoners that we keep locked up for our own pleasure. And and often Agag will delicately and cheerfully whisper in your ear, Hey, you you can keep me around a little bit longer. Hey, you you don't need to get rid of me. So put that sword up. Get off that altar. I'm not causing you any problems, but we learn from Samuel is... A pretty important lesson with sin. We cannot be merciful with Agag. We cannot be deceived by Agag. We cannot even entertain a deal with Agag or he will turn and try to devour us. We must ruthlessly deal with our sin. We must take out our sword and hack it to pieces. The New Testament word for this is mortification. The Apostle Paul instructs us in the book of Colossians. He says, mortify therefore, and he gives us a list of sin. Put it to death. Kill it. One preacher wisely said, either you're killing your sin or it's killing you. 
Listen, if you really want to defeat your sin, it's more than just hearing a good sermon, being convicted in your heart, or praying a prayer at the altar. That's all important. That's all where it starts. But defeating sin requires that you take out your sword and you ruthlessly hew your sin into pieces. So you're thinking, what does that mean? I mean, it's not literal, right? Of course not. But what does that look like in our lives today? It's not like we can grab a sword and start hacking our sin. Well, I'll tell you what it's like in Matthew chapter 5. Here's the application for 1 Samuel chapter 15. Matthew chapter 5 is a portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And look at verse number 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if by right I offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So, so I understand that, that Jesus here is dealing specifically with the sin of adultery, with sexual sin. However, the practical principle in this, pla- in this passage actually applies to all sin. Jesus has made some serious, and I would even say some shocking statements here when he said you can't even look at a woman with lust in your heart. If you're having a problem with this sexual sin, you need to cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, cast it away, or be cast into hell. And I believe he makes these shocking statements to wake us up to the seriousness of our sin. And to alert us to the radical measures necessary to deal with it. Here's what what we're going to learn. That Jesus calls Christians, listen, to a serious standard and a serious strategy because of the serious stakes involved. He starts with a serious standard in verse 27 and verse 28. Would you look at it again? You have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, he raises a standard, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his, what's that next word? Heart. Jesus is saying that if a person wants purity, it's not enough to avoid having a physical, sexual relationship with someone who's not their spouse. If they want purity, Jesus says, they must not even desire sex with anyone who is not their spouse. Jesus raises the standard of purity from the physical acts of fornication to the lustful intentions of the heart. And and there's a deeper principle here. Jesus always starts with the heart. We're going to see that Jesus didn't stop there. He's about to call us to take radical measures on the outside with our hands and with our eyes. But he started with the heart because Jesus knows something that is vitally important in your fight against sin. And it's this. Everything that comes out of you was first inside of you. James makes the point in James chapter 1 that sin starts with just a little seed of lust on the inside. And it's what nobody can see it. But as you feed that sinful desire, it begins to grow on the inside like a, like a baby grows inside a mother's womb. Then eventually it has to come out. It gives birth to sin on the outside. 
Listen, sin doesn't just show up in your life randomly. No, you allow sin to run free in your heart before it ever is seen in your life. Committing sin that everybody sees is typically the the last stop on a long road of inward sins that nobody can see. I'm telling you, church, that, 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 that a dozen other things have gone wrong in you by the time sin actually comes out of you. Let me explain. When you lose your temper and you scream or slam a door, punch a wall, or that's just for spewers. If you're a steward, you give the person you're upset with the silent treatment. That's a form of anger. That's not just a random act of blowing up. The source of this sin is your heart. There is an agag of anger in your heart that you aren't dealing with. When you lie, young people, to to your parents about where you're going or who you're going with, it's because there's an agag of rebellion in your heart that you're letting run free. When you come to church and you're lethargic and lukewarm or perhaps skip church altogether, it could be because there's an agag of spiritual indifference in your heart that you're not dealing with. Men, let me talk to you for a second. Based on the context of Matthew chapter 5, when, when, when men look at pornography, that's, that's the Christian man's drug, and get hooked on it. It's because there's an agag of lust running free in your heart that you are not dealing with. Are you following this? When you gossip about someone else in the church, whether it's true or not, hey, listen, that isn't a one-time random sin of the tongue. Oh, it came out, for the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Gossip comes out of you because there's an agag of bitterness or there's an agag of envy or there's an agag of insecurity inside of you. Here's the point. Defeating your sin doesn't begin with fixing everything on the outside. The truth is that you can go home tonight and make all kinds of adjustments in your life. I'm going to stop being angry. I'm going to stop being so lethargic about my spiritual duties. I'm going to stop looking at pornography. I'm going to stop gossiping. You can be as determined as you want to be, but if you don't get your heart right first, your outward change will only be temporary. Somebody say amen. Start with the heart. That's where Jesus starts. But he doesn't stop there. He follows a serious standard with a serious strategy because here's the truth. If you want to defeat your sin, you can pray and beg and cry and wail all you want. But at the end of the day, you will also need to be very practical. And so Jesus gets practical. Look at the first part of verse 29. And if I write, I offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. First part of verse 30, and if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. Wow. He's saying if you're tempted to violate the standard that Jesus set forth, he says the next step you need to take is to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand. And you must not only remove these parts of your body, he also makes the statement you got to throw them away. Because Jesus won't allow you to retain sinning body parts in hopes of using them later. Are you following this? He commands that you cast them away and abandon any future prospect of using them again for sinful purposes. Now you talk about radical. You talk about getting your sword out. 
to be clear, Jesus doesn't mean that you and I have to actually get out an actual knife and literally remove these parts of our body. He often spoke in powerful metaphors, didn't he? After all, people who lack eyes and they even lack hands can still lust and sin in their hearts. Jesus is urging something even more radical than a one-time physical amputation. He's telling us that when we are tempted to sin, we must act aggressively. Every time we are tempted and in every way required to avoid that sin. In other words, the strategy Jesus gives is simply this, to employ radical measures to limit any and all access to sin. I have found this is very difficult for people to do, including myself. And here's the reason why most of us won't cast, cut off a hand or pluck out an eye or cast it away. We'll keep it close. Primarily because it's inconvenient. And I know taking radical measures to defeat sin can be very inconvenient. But listen to me, church. The inconvenience will be worth what you gain in holiness. So let me mention some possibilities. I wonder how you might need to take radical measures. By the way, you know what your agag is. And the person preaching tonight knows what his agag is. And if you don't have an agag, would you meet me in the foyer and tell me how? I found that a lot of times the sin in our lives involves the people in our lives. Thus, the radical measure some of you may need to take is to limit your access to those people. If your agag is your attitude, then cut off the people in your life that influence that bad attitude. If your agag is gossip, perhaps you need to cut off the people in your life that are you most prone to gossip with. If your agag is spiritual indifference, perhaps you need to limit your time with people who could be influencing that lukewarmness in your life. If your agag is, is an opposite sex relationship that you know is negatively affecting your relationship with the Lord, hey, take your sword out and cut them up. Not really, but. I tell young people this, and I think it applies to adults, that it's very hard for any change to be a lasting change without a change in your relationship. Paul said, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. I wonder why he started that, that command with this, be not deceived. Perhaps, be, by the way, he was speaking to adults in that church. Perhaps because he thought adults would say, oh, I, I've outgrown friends influencing me and people influencing me. No, Paul's saying, be not deceived. You never outgrow being influenced. You are influenced by what you expose yourself to. Maybe the radical measure you need to take involves the things you listen to with your ears and see with your eyes. Evaluate how media would influence you. Things like TV and movies and music and books. Be, be honest with yourself. Or, or are any of these things an access point for temptation in regards to your specific agag? If they are, you may need to get radical. I'm talking about deleting some songs or... Stop watching some television shows or stop reading certain books. I, 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 I'm talking about going home perhaps and deleting some of your social media accounts. Talking about the ones that provide access points for Agag to sneak back into your life. And parents, can I 
speak into you for a moment as I speak into myself. That part of our responsibility is to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And that responsibility includes us being discerning about the agags in our children's life. And to help them cut off access points. Somebody say amen. I weary, I, I weary of, of, of parents that, that, that let the agags run free in their homes and get into the hearts and lives of their young people and they graduate, don't love God, and they sit back and say, I wonder what we did wrong. Maybe the radical measure you need to take involves your use of time. If the devil targets you and you're spending time alone, hey, limit the time you spend by yourself. If certain things that you spend your time doing distract you from doing the right things, or if they don't necessarily stop, rather they stop you from doing the right things, or if they don't stop you from doing the right things, they distract you when you are doing the right things, or zap energy from your life when you are doing the right things, then you need to limit your time doing those things, and those things could even be good things, but if they create a spirit, a, a, a spirit of indifference, in your heart towards the Lord, then you have to get serious about limiting your time in those areas. Now be honest with yourself. I, I've seen a lot of men taken away from God by their hobbies. And, and I love hobbies. I, I have hobbies. And, and boy, God, God is good to remind me when those hobbies start to overwhelm my heart with passion. And I can tell because I get lethargic about my spiritual duties. And a hobby's a good thing. I love recreation. I, I love those kind of things, but I've got to be careful to not let those things steal my energy away from what really matters. I've seen people who have side businesses on top of their job. And those things are good things, but I've seen those things totally distract them from the right things. I've seen people even that, that get obsessed with working out and exercise and maintaining a physical, uh, what I don't have. And I'm not against that. I, I think all of that is necessary. In fact, I, I think if we're not careful, we neglect that part of our temple. But at the same time, I've seen people be distracted with training for this. Or, or maintaining this physique or whatever the case might be. And while that's a good thing, hey, listen, sometimes you got to get radical and say, i got to separate myself from that for a while because it's still in my focus. It's still in my energy. It's still in my passion. Are you following this tonight? Getting radical, taking your sword out might mean that you need to involve the account of some accountability, some radical accountability in your life by maybe asking a, a, a staff member or, or someone in your Bible class to keep you accountable each week regarding the agag in your life. Maybe you need to get radical with the accountability um, of what you allow on your phone. So, so, so get some kind of software that provides its own internet browser. Send reports of your internet activity to an accountability partner or set the restrictions on your phone to high. Make sure you can't purchase a new app without somebody you trust entering a password you don't know. Maybe you just need to get another godly friend in the church and ask them to text you every single day to see if you read your Bible and pray. And I know you might be thinking, wow, this is over the top. We're adults. 
This is so radical, and I get that. And I'm sure the disciples were thinking the same thing when Jesus started talking to them about cutting their hand off and plucking their eyeballs out. And I'm sure people that were looking on at Samuel hewing him into Agag into pieces probably thought, dude, you can stop any time now. He was dead 10 minutes ago. Listen, you might be thinking, what am I going to do without my iPhone? How am I going to get sports scores? What if I cancel my Dish Network? How am I going to watch my shows? Or how am I going to update my Instagram account? Or how am I going to invite someone else into my internet usage? How do I just stop my hobby, cold turkey? Is this guy serious about all this? Believe me, I've heard it all. But if you're stressing about what I've been preaching, it could be because you are considering the seriousness of the strategy without considering the seriousness of the stakes. Because Jesus didn't stop by saying, cast your hand away, throw your eyeball out. No, he, he gives the seriousness of the stakes. Look at the last part of verse 29. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Look at the end of verse 30. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Why does he urge such radical measures? Like, cut off a hand, pluck out an eye. And why did Samuel have to take out his sword and literally hack a guy to pieces? And why is this preacher tonight telling me that I need to get rid of my phone or cut off some friends or break up with my boyfriend or take the TV out of my room? Well, because of the life and death nature of the consequences. Employing radical measures is the path to life. While indulging in sin is the path to hell. God doesn't tell you to utterly destroy your sin because he wants you to be miserable. He's not a joy killer. He came to give you life and life more abundant. God tells you that because sin leads to brokenness. Agags lead to sadness and emptiness and death and hell. But righteousness, on the other hand, it leads to fullness and it leads to joy and it leads to peace and it leads to life. According to Jesus, listen, sin is not complicated. There are two simple choices and two guaranteed consequences. Number one, the easy path of sin, which will kill you. Number two, the hard path of radical warfare against sin, which will lead you to the fullness of life. Do you understand why Jesus said what he said? It's because he has seen what many of us have seen in the lives of people that hang on to sin in their lives and refuse to deal with it, and and his heart was brought to tell these disciples, I don't want you to be taken down by sin. I don't want your home to be taken down by sin. I don't want your church to be taken down by sin. I don't want your purity to be robbed by sin. I don't want your finances to be ripped away by sin. I don't want your testimony to be shattered by sin. Pluck it out. Cut it off. We can't play games. On April 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston, maybe you know this story, was hiking alone through Blue John Canyon in eastern Utah while he was descending what they call a slot canyon, a suspended boulder 
became dislodged while he was climbing down from it. The rock crushed his right hand against the canyon wall. He could not get it loose. Unfortunately, he hadn't informed anyone of his hiking plans, nor did he have any way to call for help. The only thing he could do at this point was try and free his arm from the 800-pound boulder. But he couldn't get his arm free. After a few days of trying to get his arm free, he knew the only way out would be to amputate it. So he took out his two-inch dull pocket knife and he made a few exploratory cuts to his forearm. And it dawned on him that he was going to have to cut through his bones. And that little pocket knife was not sufficient to do the job. He knew he was doomed. He spent five days slowly sipping from his 12-ounce jug of water. And thankfully, he packed two burritos. And he took a little bit of a bite at a time and made them last as long as he could. After the fifth day, he ran out of food and he ran out of water. And I don't want to be crude, but he was so desperate, he drank his own urine. He knew he was going to die, so he carved his name, the date of birth, and presumed date of death into that canyon wall. He videotaped his last goodbyes to his family. He fell asleep, not expecting to wake up. To his surprise, he woke up. And that's when he noticed that his arm had begun to decompose due to the lack of circulation. And he says in his book that he had an epiphany. He could break his radius and ulna bones using torque against his trapped arm. He did so. Then he took out his two-inch pocket knife and he amputated his forearm in about one hour. Over the course of those few days, he lost 40 pounds, 25% of his blood. Yet when he got free from the boulder, he repelled down a 65-foot wall and eventually made it to someone that could help him. They say later on that when they went to retrieve his arm that was stuck under the boulder, it took them using 13 men, a winch and a hydraulic jack to move the boulder. Needless to say, if he hadn't been willing to amputate his arm, he would have died. In fact, Aaron Ralston later said this in an interview, I smiled as I cut off my arm. Put that up there, brother. I want them to see that, Brother Travis. I smiled as I cut off my arm. I was grateful to be free. How could a man, seriously, get to a point where he was willing and even happy to cut off his own arm with a pocket knife? I'll tell you how. Listen. He realized how serious the stakes were. Are you listening? He realized the life and death consequences. Hey, no one, no one removes a limb because it's fun. No one removes a limb because it's convenient. They do it because they realize they cannot keep that limb and live. It's a life and death situation. Listen, the radical amputations you are being asked to make in your life in order to defeat your sin. Listen, they're not meant to be easy. They're not meant to be fun. They're not meant to be convenient. They're not meant to be comfortable. They're meant to be radical. They're meant to be painful. They're, me they're meant to be costly. But when you realize that amputation is the only way to experience freedom, you'll be willing to do it.
Until then, you'll hang on to Agag. And he will trouble you. And he will frustrate you. And he will disappoint you. And and you will suffer. And those around you will suffer until you get a hold of the consequences that are life and death when it comes to hanging on to your sin. Unfortunately, most people, most people don't come to that realization until they get stuck under an 800-pound boulder. And their marriage is shattered. And their testimony is shattered. And their career is shattered. They wait too long. Frog and toad knew they had to take steps to get far away from the cookies, as far away as they could. They tried a number of things. Here's what they tried. Putting the cookies in a box, tying up the box, even putting the box on a very high shelf. They both realized, however, the story says, that they could always undo the measures they put in place. They could still get the cookies if they tried really hard. So at the end of the children's story, they take the most radical step of all, and they go outside, and they throw all the cookies to the birds. Now, with no more cookies to eat, what would they do? Well, the story says that Toad slowly hopped back home, went into his kitchen, put on his apron, turned on his oven, and baked himself a cake. That's a pretty elementary story, but it teaches us a critically important truth in defeating sin, and it's this. Outward measures, regardless of how radical they are, can never change your heart. Frog and toad tried putting the cookies far out of reach, but eventually it found a way to eat them because no matter what they tried, watch, they still wanted the cookies. Never forget this lesson. You can make all the outward changes you want, but if you still desire that sin in your heart, you will find a way back to it. That's why Jesus, listen please, oh, if you, if you haven't listened, listen here. That's why Jesus and the good news of the gospel is your only hope for defeating sin. Because only Jesus has the power to change your heart's desires. And he does that as you seek forgiveness and as you access his transforming grace every day. So you might be saying, Brother Ty, you just contradicted yourself. If a change of heart is what is ultimately needed, why so much focus on radical amputation? Well, because the emphasis on the need for change in your heart doesn't mean ignoring other more outward forms of radical action. Because outward radical measures, they don't change your desires, but they do give you space in which to change. Did you catch that? Change takes time. Old ways of living must die. New ways of living must form. New kinds of thinking must be learned. Radical measures allow the space and time needed for you to direct your attention back to Christ and for you to access his grace to transform the desires of your sinful heart. Did you catch that? You don't give yourself a chance. You don't give your heart space. You don't give God's grace space to come into your life if you don't create it by taking radical measures. Radical measures will not change you. They won't. You can change your environment. You can change your friends. 
You can go to an old-fashioned flip phone. But if it's in you, it will come out of you. You will try to get the cookies again or you'll bake a cake. So who changes the heart? Jesus Christ. Not a man preaching to you. Not a motivational sermon. Not a great choir song. Not a friend's accountability. Listen, the gospel. His death on the cross that died for that sin. And gives you hope for freedom over that sin. But you have to give his grace space. So invite those radical measures in your life. Cut off the hand and pluck out the eye. Hew Agag into pieces. So God can come in and transform your heart. Would you stand every head bowed and every eye closed? Question. Question.